welcome to Knoxville Chronicles, a podcast series produced by the Knoxville History Project, an educational nonprofit which researches and promotes the history and culture of Knoxville, Tennessee. From the day it was finished in 1903, the Southern Railroad Station on Depot Street was remarkable. It was overcrowded for one thing, an unwelcome surprise to the architect, who had apparently miscalculated. The mortar had hardly dried between the bricks before people were complaining it wasn't big enough for the job. The station had a tall clock tower with clocks facing in each of the four directions, addressing a lone express need since to catch your train, you need to know exactly what time it is. The station was also perfectly symmetrical. Symmetry is often considered appealing in architecture in general, but in this case, the law seemed to demand it. Train stations were to be racially segregated, and the only way segregation could be legal, the Supreme Court had recently opined, was that accommodations be equal. In the Southern Station, white people went to one side, African Americans to the other. On paper, at least, they were equal in square footage of the waiting rooms. The common foyer was right in the middle as you walked in. There was one face you'd see there every day, a woman in uniform with a white hat. Her name was Maggie Lattimore. No one spent more time in the building in those early decades. Although she was an African-American in a segregated train station, she often seemed to be in charge, catering to the passengers of all colors. If there was any trouble, she would fix it. She was the station matron. There was a time when everyone knew Maggie Lattimore, or Aunt Maggie, as some knew her. If you walked into the Southern Railroad Depot anytime before World War II, she'd be the first person you saw. She was, according to one contemporary account, the most widely known Negress in this section of the South. Little is known about her youth. She was born in Madisonville, somewhere between 1856 and 1862, according to the nine decades of estimates of her age. Of course, all those dates suggest she may have been born in slavery, but that she would have been very young at the time of emancipation. According to one account, she had received an education and was said to have planned to teach when she was a young girl. Her father's name was Aaron Lattimore, and at some point he got a job in Knoxville, working in the yards of the East Tennessee, Virginia and Georgia Railroad. Maybe it didn't have a name euphonymous enough to appear in popular folk songs, but for 25 years in the late 19th century, the ETV&G was one of the South's biggest railroads, a major inland connector that gave the Deep South a conduit to the urban Northeast. Its headquarters was in Knoxville, and its main regional station was on Depot Street, just west of Gay. Soon after the Civil War, Aaron's daughter, Mary Susan, got a job as a maid in Knoxville's main train station. Maggie sometimes helped her sister Mary Susan and was working in the station as a teenager, perhaps as early as 1875. At some point, the railroad gave Maggie Lattimore an unusual title. By several accounts, it was at the beginning of January 1881 that the railroad began referring to her as the station matron. It was apparently an unusual hire, not just because she was black. In the 1880s, Almost all railroad station staffers were men. Maggie Lattimore was said to be East Tennessee's first railroad station matron. Dressed in an immaculate uniform and white cap, 
Knoxville Journal columnist Charles Patton later remembered, the little woman was always ready for the arrival of passenger trains, 12 hours every day and Sunday. She was well informed about affairs in the city and could direct persons to places they were hunting. The promotion was likely a matter of pride for her father, who had worked for ETV&G for many years, but his story adds some complication to hers. It would appear that her father, a railroad employee at age 70, was the Aaron Lattimore who was unloading coal from a train near the station late the following September when there was a mistake. He was run over and died shortly after. The deceased was an aged and respected color man, reported the Daily Chronicle. He leaves behind a large circle of friends and family. With African-American Reverend George W. LeVere, pastor of Shallow Presbyterian, representing the family, the accident was formally blamed on the railroad, which two years later was adjudicated to owe Lattimore's family $800, perhaps $20,000 in today's money. Maggie Lattimore, who was notable for her strong work ethic and loyalty, may have had complicated feelings toward her employer. In 1894, when she was in her 30s, a notable investor whose name was J.P. Morgan bought the ETV&G and made it a critical point in his latest project, the Southern Railroad. Southern's executives changed a lot of things about their operation, but saw the obvious value of a station matron and kept Maggie Lattimore on their staff. President Samuel Spencer, the civil engineer who worked with Morgan to create Southern Railway, was especially impressed with Lattimore and sent her a letter of commendation, calling her the Queen of Maids, a title that probably seemed more agreeable at the time, and she was, by all accounts, much more than a maid. A later president, Fairfax Harrison, who was also an attorney and historian, also offered his personal commendation to Lattimore in a letter. These public gestures earned her some positive notoriety unusual for a railroad station staffer. Her new title was now head matron. She was a sort of concierge, a guide and troubleshooter, offering directions and help for passengers, but was especially attentive to women, children, elderly, and the disabled. Kids often became separated from their parents in the crowd station, and Aunt Maggie was there to help them. A 1915 article in the Journal and Tribune noted, she is popular and often receives letters of appreciation for services she has extended to women and children, and she has aided hundreds of aged and crippled women to and from the trains. Once, when she helped an elderly couple into their seats in a passenger car, the man turned to hand her a tip, and she was already off helping someone else. He mailed the $10 bill, the equivalent of a couple of hundred today, to the station to pass it to the Negro matron who had assisted them. Lattimore was also a one-woman lost objects department. She often found jewelry, watches, fur coats, and cash stuffed purses in the waiting room and endeavored to reconnect them with their rightful owners. Her goodwill also extended to helping the hungry. Back then, it was not unusual for women to be traveling with children, but had little food or cash. When Lattimore noticed someone who seemed in need, she would interview them. She arranged some way to have them relieved, often buying food with her own money. At times, the diminutive woman was required to be fearless. Everyone came to the train station, and some were drunk or violent. 
When any disturbances occurred, she was the first person in the waiting rooms to discover it. She would call officers to the waiting rooms to prevent trouble. She would have been there at the time of the violent Depot Street car riot in 1897, just down the block. No question, it was an exciting place to work. Buffalo Bill was there a few times, and Saloon Buster Carey Nation was there in 1902, raising hell just outside the station. Then in 1911, President William Howard Taft made a highly publicized visit for a major banquet across the street at the big Hotel Atkin. The actual Liberty Bell came by the station one time on a flat car, as did the body of William Jennings Bryan in a coffin. Lattimore was there almost every day, typically working 12 hours a day. She was never gone too long. This is except one day early in 1915. There were some affluent African-Americans in Knoxville at the time, professionals who lived in roomy houses with kitchens and gardens. To see her in her uniform in charge of a hundred crises, you might think Maggie Lattimore might have lived among them, but she did not. At the time, she lived in Buck Alley, a narrow residential lane within an urban thicket of short streets and alleys on the downtown side of Mechanicsville. There were streetcars that went that way, but she lived a few blocks from the stop. She may have saved fair money by just walking home from work. On her way home along McGee Street one Saturday night in February 1915, when she was in her late 50s, Maggie encountered a highwayman. Believed to be a white man, he assaulted her, knocking her hard in the head and taking her purse with her weekly earnings. She was in bed for days, and the assault apparently necessitated an operation a few months later. It was the first time she'd ever missed work. Surely, unnerved by the accident, she moved in with her sister, Elizabeth Mayhew, and her husband, Caleb, another Southern Railroad employee, a truckman. They lived on Owen Street, on the east side of downtown. She would stay there for many years, seeing her sister through her final illness and finally living there alone. But she did return to her post at the depot, now with a lighter workload. By the 1920s, she could go home after only eight hours, not the usual 12. By the time she was in her mid-60s, Maggie Lattimore was so beloved that she received regular tributes in both newspapers, often in early January. On January 1st, 1928, the News Sentinel ran a story about her, noting that former Knoxvillians who returned home after decades of absence were sometimes disoriented by what they found. The old flag pond along the tracks had been filled in. There were several big buildings to the north of Depot, and the new station was much larger and no longer where it used to be. Then they would find Maggie Lattimore standing at the top of the steps. They'd say, perhaps with some relief, Aunt Maggie, you are the only thing that still looks the same. The reporter noted that the now elderly matron sometimes called the trains, that is, announced the incoming trains to the audiences of passengers in the waiting rooms. It was a job that had been recently given to young men, but they were sometimes distracted and failed to do the job. The story quoted her, and the ladies tell me they can understand what I am saying better than when these boys call them. Lattimore was once said to have excellent English in speech, and when local reporters of either paper quoted her, it was without dialect or slang. None of them tried to make her sound comical. Days after that story appeared, she had a moment of national fame. 
that may have been ambiguous for a woman who once aspired to be a teacher. A United Press story, perhaps based only on the new Sentinel story, began appearing in newspapers around the nation. Unlike her quotes in more than a dozen local stories, she was quoted as if she spoke in a minstrel show dialect with comical malaprops. A lot of people tell me they understand my enunciation better. Thus, a competent woman with a responsible career became, in the perception of others who did not know her, a cheap joke. The story appeared that way repeatedly over a three-month period in dozens of newspapers from New Jersey to California, from Idaho to Ohio. That version seems not to have appeared in the Knoxville newspapers. Perhaps Matron Lattimore never heard about it, or if she did, she chose to ignore it. She began having health problems around that time, but kept working. During the fall harvest season in 1934, New Sentinel columnist Bert Vincent spotted her. She was moving slowly down Market Street to take a seat on a bench in the market house. A white woman who remembered her with gratitude for helping her family at the station during a crisis recognized her and asked her where she'd been. Baby, I've been very sick, Lattimore said, but I am able to get about now, bless the Lord. Vincent stated that she had retired with a small pension but it sounds likely she returned for a little more work before she turned 80 years old. Southern Railway, honoring her seniority with work she'd done for the previous company, pre-acquisition credit many modern corporations don't respect, gave her a medal as large as two silver dollars with her name and half century of service. At 80, she wore it on her lapel when she went out to shop and visit with friends at Vine and Central the center of the African-American community. Lattimore stayed in her sister's old house on Owen Street. About the time the war broke out, she moved to the public retirement facility, the George Maloney home, out in the countryside of Northeast Knox County near the penal farm. Both were generally known then as Maloneyville. When she died there of pneumonia in April, 1949, she had reportedly reached the age of 90. Charles Lattimore, who was likely a nephew, took care of arrangements. He had a job as public as hers, but he was probably not as well known. He was a longtime trombonist for the Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus. After a funeral at historic Logan Temple AME Church, she was buried at Daughters of Zion Cemetery, which is part of what's now known as Odd Fellows, near Five Points. After her death, the Knoxville Journal's elderly local history columnist, Charles V. Patton, wrote a tribute to her. It is likely that no one alive remembers Maggie Lattimore today, but she should be remembered. If we can't find that medal she used to wear, maybe we can make a new one and install it where she worked for most of her long life. Thank you for listening to Knoxville Chronicles. This story was written by Jack Neely and narrated by Daytona Carter Mitchell. Sound design and editing by Pete Carty. Theme song composed by Mike Stallings. For other podcasts and stories, please join us online at knoxvillehistoryproject.org or find us on your favorite podcast hosting platform. Funding for this project has been provided by Friends of the Knoxville History Project, and Federal Award Number 21.027.
awarded to the city of Knoxville by the U.S. Department of the Treasury and the Arts and Culture Alliance. <laughs>